Hello everybody, this is the first sermon in our new series, Unveiling Hope. Where is God? What is he doing now? Where on earth is the world headed to? Why are we being allowed to suffer in this way? How should we respond to the current crisis? Do those questions sound familiar? They certainly do. We are all asking them during this outbreak of the coronavirus. These are also the questions being asked of us by our non-Christian family, friends and neighbours. Sometimes they're asked with sincere interest, other times with scorn. But the world has been shaken so hard, everyone is at least beginning to think upon the deeper things of life. This, of course, gives us great opportunity to share our faith, but it is also deeply challenging. We soon realise that we don't have all the answers, and that makes us doubt and worry. It is reassuring to us, then, to discover that we are not the first Christians to be placed in this position. These exact questions have been asked before, asked by the church going through a previous time of suffering and hardship. Wonderfully, back then, God knew the support his people needed and acted to give it. He did so by revealing a glimpse of the future, a glorious future that enabled perspective to be gained on the troubling present. God revealed to them the hope that they were to hold on to. Welcome to the book of Revelation. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look in fairly broad brushstrokes at the truths that this compelling book contains. We're going to find some answers to our questions, though we need to be aware they might not be all the answers we expect. Above all, we're going to find our hope in Jesus affirmed. This series will encourage us all to hold on to him in times of difficulty and to keep telling our neighbours about his love. The first thing I need to do is explain exactly what Revelation is. It is undoubtedly the most complicated book in the Bible, and because of that, over the years, many people have interpreted it in different ways, coming to wildly different conclusions. You will need to understand the approach I am going to take and why. Then you can decide for yourselves if it makes sense. First of all, the book of Revelation is not actually a book at all. It is a letter. It is a letter written to seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. It was a letter written to meet the needs of their specific situation. Therefore, when we read Revelation, we do so looking over their shoulders, as it were. We always have to remember that this letter was not originally directed to us. Yes, of course, there is a lot for us to learn from it today. That's why it's preserved in scripture. But we can only understand this letter if we know first what it originally meant to them. If our interpretations today wouldn't have made sense to a first century Christian, then they are likely to be wrong. Second, the letter of Revelation is a prophecy. It says this clearly in verse 3. So what is prophecy? 
In the Old Testament, we find many people designated as prophets, speaking God's word to their contemporaries. God gave these men and women insight into their time so they could shine a light on it for their neighbours around them. This insight from God, more often than not, led the prophets to warn the people about their current behaviour and to point to the consequences if that behaviour continued unabated. The prophets spoke of God's judgment if the people didn't repent, but also promised that God would act to rescue them if they did. Just think of the story of Jonah, for example. Christian prophecy is not then primarily about predicting the future. It is much more about confronting the present with God's hopes and promises and plans. Prophecy is about speaking God's truth into the trials of today. The first readers of Revelation, based in those seven churches, would have been expected to take practical steps in response to this prophecy. Our task today is to find out what response was expected of them all those years ago and then figure out what that response would look like coming from ourselves in the year 2020. Finally, we need to realise that the prophetic letter of Revelation is precisely what it says it is. A revelation. The Greek word translated revelation in the very first word is Apocalypse. Now, in the first century, the word apocalypse had a very specific meaning. It meant unveiling. It was the unveiling of something previously hidden. Revelation is going to teach us something new about God, his plans and his future. It's going to give us a fresh perspective on history in light of its final outcome. When we today hear the word apocalypse, we think of zombies and disasters in some distant dystopian future. We have the film industry to thank for that. But in the Bible, apocalypse is not necessarily about disasters at all. It is about challenging human behaviour in the present and encouraging faithfulness as believers go through a tough time. Ultimately, revelation is the unveiling of hope. God's hope for his people in a time of trial. Unveiling hope will be the title of our series, and we'll be looking for hope in every passage. We must remember that we're not used to reading apocalyptic literature, but those of the first century were. There'll be many symbols and pictures we struggle to understand and have to wrestle with, but the first hearers would have known what they meant straight away. They would have picked up that this book is about hope rather than destruction far quicker than we do. With that in mind, let us now turn to think a little about those first recipients and what their situation was like. Why was it they so needed hope? Well, we get some clues in this opening chapter. In the first 60 years or so after the events of the first Easter, the early Christian movement developed great momentum. 
It rapidly grew and spread out until there were little churches meeting in people's homes and workplaces dotted all around the Mediterranean region. As the years passed and things settled down a bit, questions began to emerge. What was God doing now? What were his plans for these little groups of Jesus followers? Where was all this going? What made these questions understandable and particularly urgent was the growing climate of persecution these Christians were having to live in. The Roman Empire was vast at this time and the demands of the state religion were getting stronger. The people had to worship the emperor. That was how peace and provision and protection would be maintained for all. The Christians then were being forced to face a difficult decision. What line should they take? Should they quietly go along with the emperor outwardly, while all the time worshipping Jesus in secret? Or should they resist? Already by this stage they know that resistance would lead to considerable trouble, not just at the hands of the authorities, but from their own neighbours and country folk who thought their radical stance destabilised the whole community. It was not long at all before the Christians experienced considerable hardship. Notice what John, the author of Revelation, says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is a companion in suffering. He is having to endure patiently beside them. Tradition tells us that Patmos was probably an island of exile. John was being punished by the Roman authorities for his fearless teaching of Christ and his kingdom. In that one sentence, you get the nub of the question the original readers of Revelation were asking. We believe God is sovereign, the risen Christ is reigning, but if he is in control, why are we suffering so badly now? That is a big question. A question that is going to need an apocalypse, a special divine unveiling to even begin to answer. I hope we can see why this book might be helpful to us in this time. We might not be facing persecution, but we are suffering. We want to know why. We want to know what God is up to. We want to know how to practically respond to this crisis. So by way of introduction, we have thought about what Revelation is, and we have thought about the people and the situation this letter was first addressed to. There is one thing left for us now to do. We must consider the author who wrote it. A moment ago I said the author was John, but in truth there is far more to it than that. The opening verses of the letter say this, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
This is the revelation or the apocalypse from Jesus Christ. This letter contains a divine unveiling given by Jesus and about Jesus. Let us get this right from the start. Jesus is the message and the messenger. One Lord's Day, on his island of exile, John committed himself to worship. He sets an example to all of us during this coronavirus crisis by determinedly choosing to seek God even when he was suffering. In response to his devotion, John is granted a vision. This is a vision of God from Jesus delivered through an angel. It is given to John so that it can be shared with all God's servants in the churches that need it at that time. John is to write the vision down so that the struggling believers can read it and take it to heart. This vision is going to bring them all the hope and help they need to keep them going. So John is the guy who wrote these words down, but Jesus is the author. He is the central figure of all that will take place. It is to Jesus, not John, that those suffering in the churches needed to turn to. The whole point of this opening chapter is to get the bewildered Christians to lift their eyes up from the ground and look to Jesus. That is always the first thing to do in a crisis. And when they looked up, what did they see? Well, this is what they saw. Jesus is God, part of the Trinity, says verse 4. He seeks to bring grace and peace to all God's people. Jesus is the faithful witness, the one who speaks God's truth to us in times of need. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the one who brings the hope of resurrection to us all. In him, death is not the end, but the beginning. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings, the most powerful person in history. Jesus is our saviour and redeemer. Verse 5 tells us he loves us so much, he shed his blood purely for our forgiveness. Jesus is our king, high priest and team captain, says verse 6. He has given every single one of us a purpose, called us into his service, and through our witness he will bring glory to himself. Jesus is the judge of all the world. Verse 7 tells us that one day he's coming back to this earth and then every eye will see him. He will hold sin to account, act with perfect justice and put all things right. These really are stellar titles. You cannot get higher descriptions of deity than these. And yet, Jesus is also so personal. As the introduction ends and the revelation truly begins, John gets a wonderful personal vision of Jesus. The imagery is complicated, it's all drawn from the Old Testament, but we are in no doubt to its effect. John is soon overwhelmed by seeing Jesus. He falls on the floor, terrified as if dead. This is no gentle Jesus, meek and mild, from Christmas cards and school plays. 
John sees a holy king priest. So spotlessly majestic, words simply cannot do justice to his glory. Jesus is piercingly holy, deafeningly loud, and as bright as the sun on a hot summer's day, which you can only look at for a moment before it damages your retina. No wonder John falls prostrate on the floor. But here is the beautiful bit. Jesus hasn't come in his vision to burn John up. He's come to help him in his exile, and all the other Christians like him. So in verse 17, he gently places his hand on John's shoulder and speaks those beautiful words, Do not be afraid. Oh, how John and the believers then, and us today, need to hear those words from Jesus. Do not be afraid. But he goes on. Jesus says, and I paraphrase, Yes, I'm the holy God, the first and the last, the A and the Z, but I've come to help. I love you so much I died and rose again for you. Know this. I reign now. I hold the keys of death. I have power over all that causes destruction, all the kingdoms of this world. Do not fear. You can trust me. Who is Jesus? He is the King of Kings and yet our closest friend. The Holy Lord of all and yet our gentle Saviour. Hear this today. The bigger your view of Jesus, the more awe and wonder you have for him, the more help to you he is in a time of crisis. There's one final thing I want us to notice about this vision. What is this awesome, cosmic, yet personal Jesus doing in this vision? Well, verse 12 tells us that he was walking among seven lampstands. Here is our first bit of apocalyptic imagery to decode. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Remember in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had called the church to be a light to the world. This vision tells us then that Jesus is walking among his church. He's intimately connected to his people. Indeed, he holds the church leaders in his hands and therefore by definition he holds all the people in his hands as well. Do we sense this today? Even as the coronavirus rages, even as our buildings are closed, this awesome, holy, all-powerful Jesus walks among us by his Spirit. Of course, there is a challenge to that. It means he can see what we're up to. And the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 are about to be held to account. But moreover, what an encouragement. What good news. Jesus is with us when we suffer. He sees us striving to remain faithful to him, even in a crisis. And we can trust him to vindicate that choice. To conclude this opening foray into the letter, I want to share a quote with you. It comes from perhaps the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth. And something he said as a dying 80-year-old man in his final phone call. The world is dark, but we will not hang our heads. Someone is ruling, not in Moscow 
Washington or Beijing, but from above, from heaven. Karl Barth understood the power of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is the King of Kings, the exalted Lord over all the world. He holds the power over death, not the other way round. Therefore, we need not fear any power in the world or any natural disaster, however destructive they may be. After all, what's the worst that could happen? We go to be with our Saviour. The Father and Jesus are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus has the whole of human history in his hands. God's initiative wins the day, not freak accident or tragic virus. There is a meaning to the whole of life, the good and the bad, and it's found in Christ. How were the seven churches to respond to this? Well, they were to go on worshipping, even in their trial. They were to choose to trust Jesus and hold on. And they were to seek to live like and for Jesus, because in the end, his ways win. We are to do just the same today. This is the first unveiling of hope. A vision of the awesome yet loving Christ who holds us and our future in his hands.